This episode of the Insurance Coffee House is sponsored by Insurance Search. Insurance Search provides executive recruitment services to insurance companies and brokers in the UK and across the United States. Visit insurance-search.com for more details. The Insurance Coffee House, the place where you get to meet and learn from some of the most successful insurance business leaders from across the world. Hosted by Nick Hoadley, CEO of Insurance Search. Welcome to the Insurance Coffee House Global InsureTech Series. I'm Nick Hoadley, and each week you can join me as I interview leading InsureTech executives from around the world. We will be learning about the different InsureTech technologies and finding out how they can be a benefit to both insurance brokers and carriers when it comes to delivering for your customers. We'll also be learning about the different career opportunities available to insurance leaders within the InsureTech space and what benefits that can give to your career. I hope you enjoy the show. On today's episode, we are going to focus on the topic of mergers and acquisitions and specifically within the insurance and insure tech space. And to help us with that, I'm very happy to be joined by two guests from our sponsors at RSM, who are global experts in advisory, finance and accountancy. First of all, we have Natalie Ord, who is partner in mergers and acquisitions and the private equity team, and Peter Vandervelde, who is a corporate finance partner and head of due diligence. Welcome to the show, guys. Hi, Nick. Morning. It's an absolute pleasure to have you joining us today. Really looking forward to hearing about your insights in the M&A space right now. Before we start, though, could each of you share with our listeners a little bit more about your backgrounds, your personal careers, and where you've got to where you are at RSM now? Yep, sure. Mine's probably a bit shorter, so should I I kick off? So I actually joined what was then Baker Tilly, so a, a predecessor firm of RSM, about 16 years ago as one of their first graduates into corporate finance. So I I sort of dodged or bypassed the typical audit route and did my accountancy training in the the M&A team and stayed once I qualified. So I've been in there in that team for 16 years and progressed sort of through through every level along the way. So my background is working with privately owned businesses, helping them predominantly to, to get ready to sell, to go through a process which can be quite stressful and to negotiate with buyers to get the deal over the line to get the best terms. So that's that's sort of my area of focus. And as I say, it's pretty pretty dull because I've been at RSM for 16 years as, and from a, from a graduate. Uh, fantastic. Thank you, Natalie. And Peter? Yeah, I, I've always had an interest in insurance. In fact, I did an insurance-based degree back in the uh, in the dark ages and um, even, even tried to work in insurance for a while. But eventually, uh, in 1987, started working for a, um, a large, in fact, at the time, the largest accounting firm in audit. And my audits, then the first one was AA Insurance Services, and insurance was um, a main part of what I did for nine years being an auditor. And then eventually, I thought, well, I'll, I'll do something different. So I went into the world of due diligence. And again, insurance was a big aspect of the work that I did in due diligence in my big four home then, um, and then later took that through into working with the legacy um, RSM firm. So we uh, have done lots of work in the insurance space, initially in personal lines, and then into uh, commercial, then um, looking not just at brokers, but MGAs and other organizations, and now doing um, bigger projects, vendor due diligence projects, and other areas of financial services growing particularly well at the moment as well. That's it. Thank you, guys. And Pete, great to get that perspective ahead of our questions today. Now, it is 9.30 on a, on a Monday morning in January. We are in the insurance coffee house. What's your go-to coffee of choice that gets you set for the week? 
uh, this is where I may get kicked off the podcast because I uh, I don't drink coffee, so I'm a, I'm a tea lover, I'm afraid. So yeah, always start the day with a, a builder's builder's breakfast tea. Uh, no worries at all. No worries at all. Thanks, Nestle. Yeah, I, I love my coffee. Couldn't get through the day without it. But um, uh, if I'm absolutely honest, it's probably some sort of granules. But if, uh, if, if, if I'm treating myself to a nice coffee outside, it would be a cappuccino. But that's probably more because I like the chocolate than the coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Lovely stuff, lovely stuff. Well, thank you for that, guys. Really want to sort of dive now into the business and the work that you do. So if you could start off, would you mind giving us an overview of RSM and the financial services division that you work in? And yeah, if you could give us some perspective on the services that you provide to the insurance industry. Yeah, sure. Well, RSM is an accounting firm, like many other accounting firms. And I think what makes RSM a little bit different is that rather than being you know, our strongest suit being audit, we have got a lot of things around business services that we do, very uh, comprehensive set of services that they are. And that, that's the main way that we're organized is through what we call line of service. So Natalie and I both work in corporate finance and we have a strong tax team and, and others. But within those teams and cutting across like a matrix as a financial services specialist group and led by couple of very experienced guys in London. And uh, so we work with all those other lines of service. So, you know, within corporate finance, for example, we have modeling, capital markets, valuations, advisory and due diligence, but also we have dispute resolution, litigation support, HR advisory, restructuring, risk advisory, and even legal services coming from an accounting firm. So we like to think if a business has any sort of problems or opportunities it wants to exploit, there's probably somebody in our organization who can help them in, in uh, more than one way. Thanks, Peter. And we have a very global audience on the Insurance Coffee House. I understand that as a global business yourself, you have operations all around the world. Absolutely right. Yeah, our, our international network is a, a really a great strength and particularly strong in, in the United States, where you know we are the largest firm by far, I believe, sitting outside of the big four and uh, also strong in, in, in emerging areas, China and India as well. Fantastic. Um, Fantastic. What would you say are the key benefits of and solutions that you provide sort of specifically for the insurance sector? Maybe, Natalie, if you wouldn't mind sharing with us a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah sure. I mean, as Peter said, it's a large services firm. We can work with businesses across all arenas of, of their needs. But I think in terms of the areas that Peter and I focus on, so you know, we're specialists in transactions. So when we're working with businesses, I'm, I'm almost always acting on the sales side. So from that perspective... You know, selling a business can be a once in a lifetime event, or at least it's the culmination of years of hard work. So, for owners and shareholders, it can be quite stressful and a, and a bit of an emotional roller coaster to go through that sort of process. And our job is to relieve the burden and take away as much of that stress as possible. And, and as part of you know where we focus, we're experts in packaging up opportunities, taking those out to market, finding the right types of buyers, listening to the shareholders along the way in terms of what they want for the end home for their business because it's not always about price quite often it's about preserving the brand preserving the legacy looking after the people and making sure we get the best terms from buyers and, and importantly getting the deal over the line so i think it's that it's that partner-led end-to-end service offering that we provide there's no point at which we step back and, and similarly from peter's perspective i think on the buy side it's making sure that you know acquirers are getting what they think they're getting because quite often you know owners don't necessarily know all the gremlins that are within their business or you know i am obviously a, a glossy sales documents and say all the good things but don't necessarily say the things that buyers should be concerned about and so from the from the buy side perspective it's knowing where to focus the analysis and investigate and if needs be the terms can be renegotiated or the structure can be addressed to make sure it fits the, the opportunity 
Thank you, Natalie. Yes, I, I was just going to add uh, an example where we, we can add value to an insurance business outside of um, corporate finances is in IT systems, for example. And we recently helped a medium-sized business who was going on a consolidation trail, but they didn't really have the systems in place to, to make that work really efficiently. So our IT consulting team led the IT project there to put new systems in place and, and, and procedures so that they could uh, complete that efficiently. So not something you'd necessarily expect to go to your accounting firm huh. for something we're quite good at. Really sort of holistic process. How would you say the market is at the moment for M&A transactions? Has there been a big impact since the start of the pandemic? How's the market looking at the moment? I mean, the market at the moment is buoyant and it has been throughout the throughout the pandemic with the occasional blip. Um, it's been quite a, an interesting couple of years, as you can probably imagine. So I think the first lockdown of March to, to May, June of 2020, we saw a lot of deals that were in progress or coming to market pause. Yeah. Business owners trying to get their arms around the business and adapt to working from home and, and you know, just try to see how the impact was going to be on their business. The lifting of lockdown from about July meant, you know, a lot of business owners and, and buyers came back to the table, especially face-to-face meetings, I think, supported a lot of those sort of discussions. And towards the back end of that year, we saw a real surge of activity, partly driven by concerns about CGT changes, so capital gains tax rising, which was widely anticipated in the autumn budget of 2020 and then the March budget of 2020. So that six-month period in particular was, I think, busy across all all walks of corporate finance, and I know our diligence team were also flat out completing transactions. And I think, you know, in spite of the the next three-month lockdown at the start of 2021, a lot of activity continued, and we were back to pre-pandemic levels. So generally, the market has been pretty resilient, if not actually strong and buoyant. And we've seen a lot of activity. I think part of that has been driven by, uh, particularly within the insurance market, which is seen a lot of private equity and trade investment in recent years and is a well-trodden path for investors. And, and, and depending on the vertical that brokers or MGAs may operate in, is seen as a relatively robust niche to, to operate within. So I think in, in sort of tumultuous times, investors do tend to flock to safer markets and sectors. And I think we've seen that over the last couple of years. Yeah, thank you, Natalie. That's brilliant. So except for those sort of first few early months of the pandemic, that the market stayed pretty resilient and actually even now with different guidelines changing about whether people should be working from home or in the office actually that's not having too much of an impact at all of things people have got used to the way we're now working and will still look to acquire a business or to sell their business in the current state of play yeah very much so i think i think from a buyer's perspective people have been through the lockdowns and virtual working virtual meetings for quite some time so it feels a lot more business as usual if we have to go into another into further lockdowns or, uh, or can't physically be around the table talking together. So I think you know people are carrying on with their, their plans as they were prior to the pandemic. There are exceptions that where certain niches have been more badly affected than, than others. And so are rightly or understandably waiting for markets to return and for business to get back to a little bit more normal, such as travel insurance. But, but generally, it's been, a, it's been a busy period. Is there anything that you see, any trends that you're seeing from the buyer's perspective? Yeah. And it- always difficult because you see things in your little microcosm for what's going on you don't necessarily have exactly the right picture of the market but i think natalie's right when you've had something like the pandemic that increases the perception of risk and when there's a higher perception of risk there tends to be a flight to quality and therefore in my experience and it fits with that that there's been 
probably less of the smaller end deals taking place. You know, so some of the consolidators who are buying very small insurance brokers, I think there's been a clear slowdown in their pace of expansion. But you're seeing some of the uh, the newer sort of private equity-backed companies doing deals, but doing bigger deals than they were doing before. So I think in that in that size, there's a flight to quality, which is what you'd expect at this time. And looking forward now, guys, how do you see the, particularly the UK insurance market, how do you see that changing over the next five years or so? What type of businesses are going to be successful during these times? Well, I guess if we really knew the answer to that, we'd (laughs) be a lot richer than we are. You know, I I think you take a a long-term view of what's happened to the insurance market. And And I always think the insurance market is really interesting to look at from a textbook point of view about how businesses and sectors develop. And, you know, the, uh, there's been a bit of polarisation, I suppose, in terms of either you're a very personal service and, and, and a lot of people involved, or you've gone, you know, down, down a, a very uh, unit cost efficient route led by technology. And it's that technology leading businesses into places where they can offer a better service, where they can offer a cheaper service and you know, ultimately drive a more profitable business off the back of it. And that's really been the big overshadow of all of the changes, whether it's a move to aggregators or, you know, insure tech, just meaning that operations are more efficient. So that will continue to be a driver for at least the next five years is intelligent use of technology, not only taking cost out of the business, but making the, the business service better, getting the underwriting profitability clearer. From the days where a direct line came and completely changed the personal line market overnight back in the 80s, you know, it's all been about information and our ability to analyze data and get fantastic amounts of information out of, out of that data increases every year. That will continue, I think, to be the main driver of, uh, of what we see happening in insurance. Absolutely. So not just on the efficiencies, but actually the quality of the underwriting and the which will actually eventually make those businesses more profitable. Yes. When, when I look at an insurance broker, the mark of a really good quality insurance broker is that they're making money for their underwriter. And, and, and you know, if they're not, mm-hmm. then the underwriter will turn them off. And you don't have a business anymore. And how do you do that? Well, you can look at some fairly fundamental data coming from, you know, one data source. But actually, the extent to which you can use other data sources and, you know, even using artificial intelligence, fuzzy logic, et cetera, to really get some some edge on understanding the risk that, that you're taking on for the underwriter, that's the direction of travel. Thank you, Peter. Nat, how do you see things uh, more from your perspective going forward? I think the point Peter made around data is really important. I mean, the, the insurance market is great in the sense that you can garner so much data and information from uh, and metrics from these businesses, especially from your brokers and MGAs. And I think the emphasis will increasingly be on tracking that data and being able to support messaging and, and sales points to buyers that through the data itself. And I think that's something that businesses will need to get their arms around and make sure that they embrace. And is that data, obviously, we're looking at things from a, a policyholder, from a customer's perspective, view of the risk. With some of this new technology, the actual data that brokers are keeping themselves on their own internal business operations, is that something, does that help broker when they're looking to exit? Does that help sometime with their multiples as well? It probably depends on what it's saying in terms of uh, <laughs> how good the, how good the data is, but but yeah, generally I think the, the the nice thing about working within the insurance market is that there is so much that you can garner from policyholders, underwriters, and demonstrate that the whole value chain that you operate in that you're adding something to that, mm. and being able to support it with actual hard data rather than just conversations with the management team or, or conversations with the owners. 
really lends weight to what for the proposition that they're taking to market. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Brings us nicely on to the espresso round where the questions are short, sharp and straight to the point. So yeah, Nat, I know you're a, more of a tea drinker and I know, Peter, you, you like your chocolate in your in your cappuccino. Are you ready for the espresso round now? Absolutely. Okay. Let's go for it. The espresso round. What advice would you have for business owners considering their first acquisition? First point is that acquisitions are not without risk. So think carefully. You know, it's an expensive way or it can be an expensive way to grow a business. And unless the integration is done well, a lot of value can actually be lost rather than built. From my own experience, the, the, the most successful acquisitions have been where there is a genuine meeting of minds between the buyer and the seller. And importantly, the sort of cultural fit is right. And that the key people involved from both sides are really bought into the longer term plan and incentivized to deliver it. It's interesting, I think, the amount of time people spend actually thinking about the, the, the sort of, I guess, the process around an acquisition versus the integration of what they'll do on day one of ownership. And quite often buyers don't put enough time and emphasis on that second part. So my advice would be to, to think carefully. Exactly. Yeah, uh, I agree with all that, of course. There's a, a well-worn statistic out there that I think came from the London Business School years ago saying that 90% of acquisitions fail to meet their stated objectives. And actually, you know, in, in, in line with what Natalie's saying there, the main reason for that is not actually anything done pre-deal that it was a bad deal, but actually it, it's just not getting the integration right. And, you know, that, that might be just simple project management, not doing the things that need to be done. It might be cultural issues that are just never really dealt with. But that, that that's a real danger area. So somebody doing their first acquisition has got all of that extra risk because they don't necessarily have that experience. You know, arguably, it's likely to be at the smaller end. And I think there's more risk at the smaller end where there aren't the controls mm. and uh, in, in place and less reliable financial information on which to base your decision. Yeah. So generally, you know, the thing is, really think carefully as natalie says mm. but also just try and think well what's the alternative we're going to spend um, a lot of management time we're going to spend a lot of money and you know really maybe putting it all on one horse maybe thinking about the alternatives what can you do with that money if you were to try and grow organically mm. and organic growth is more respected to sell in a few years time and you can get the growth organically then that's more respected by a, a potential buyer than the fact that you've gone out and done a couple of acquisitions so acquisitions can be great they're the right strategic objective you've got the right experience mm. around and, and and you manage it well but there's a lot of risk with it so yeah you know, be careful and really that integration and that cult cultural fit what what would you say is the key infrastructure that needs to be in place at a business before they go on their first acquisition or before they start an acquisition trail yeah it's all about systems and processes isn't it and if you're going to bring two businesses together you want to be getting the efficiencies out, you know, on day one, but that probably means you need to start planning, you know, 100 days before rather than worrying about um, what you're doing in the 100 days after. So you know exactly how you're going to integrate, you're going to bring the systems together, you know the messages that you're going to communicate to the people. So all of those systems and processes are in place and everything is very smooth. If you don't do that, you don't look like a very competent buyer, you start to lose the hearts and minds um, of you know the management team that you bought, and maybe some of the employees. If the communications aren't clear and you don't manage things well, then people will continue doing things the way that they did rather than coming to your way of doing things. You know, value leaks at every one of those opportunities. If you've got the systems and processes, so you know exactly what's happening from day one and it's well managed. Then, so it's uh, looking in sort of internally at your own infrastructure and processes before you then start looking at the infrastructure structure at that potential target 
firm, it's important to have that right and to see how that will integrate. Yeah, there's no point in doing a transaction unless one plus one is going to be something more than two. So you've got to create some value there. Now, you might look at the revenue side of it and say, well, you know, they're doing something slightly different to us and therefore we can do some cross-selling. Really difficult to secure that value. You know, and I'm, I'm not saying it's not a worthy ambition or that, that people always fail, but it's quite difficult mm-hmm. and uh, elusive to capture that value. The thing that you can control and and, and secure a lot earlier is actually taking cost out of the equation or getting more capacity. And, and there you've got to bring people together to work together as a team on common systems in order to really secure that value. That's why that piece is so important. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Peter. And Natalie, I know a lot of our listeners, leaders of insurance brokerages, insure techs at the moment, are going to be listening out for that all important information about the multiples that you might be seeing in the market at the moment. Could you share a little bit more about that and what maybe some recent examples that you've seen in the market? Yeah, sure. So, so I think, I mean, probably worth setting out that intermediary businesses, so typically brokers, NGAs, are acquired on a normalised EBITDA basis. So that's yeah. the, the EBITDA with addbacks or exceptional costs put, put back in. That's to show the true underlying profitability of the business because quite often privately owned businesses and shareholders won't take out extra costs or it's not necessarily run as a, as a third party would run the business. Often buyers will sense check this with a commission multiple just to, just to gauge where, where they come in at, but typically it's the EBITDA that, that's the focus. And as you might expect, the, the multiples range is quite broad. So We've seen businesses at the, the five to six times normalised EBITDA level, right up to the, the sort of low double digits of 12, 13, 14 times. The, where a business features on that sort of multiple spectrum is really a reflection of the quality of the businesses, as Peter mentioned earlier. So businesses which are smaller tend to be riskier because they're dependent on perhaps fewer customers, fewer people internally, their underwriting capacity might be, might be more limited. So anything that adds risk in for a buyer tends to move it down the, the multiple curve a little bit. Conversely, businesses which are uh, more tech-led, so can be scaled more easily, um, don't need costly call centres to, to, to ramp up volumes, um, that have a broad range of distribution channels, that have strength of underwriting capacity that can demonstrate good underwriting profits. They, those all tend to feature sort of slightly higher up the curve. So there's not a, there's not a one-size-fits-all. It does depend on... The, the features of the business and importantly the succession plan and the management team who will be running the business going forward because a lot of the time especially with privately owned businesses people don't necessarily think about a transaction uh, too far in ahead and and so actually those those sorts of features of the business you're thinking about succession is not necessarily a quick win um, or something that can be changed overnight so thinking about the the team that a you know, if it's a retirement sale for example or the, the team that will be left behind is also quite an important uh, value driver. Yeah, absolutely. And we talked about sort of infrastructure that needs to be in place before going on an acquisition trail. If there are businesses out there now who are thinking about exiting or looking to retire, looking to sell their businesses, what, what would you say to them? So the main pitfalls to avoid when selling their business? Yeah, it's a good question. At the risk of sound like a doom, I'm going to probably quite a long list. I think that the sort of shorter list would be um, don't leave it too late. So thinking about it early it doesn't necessarily mean you have to have it all mapped out or know exactly what your exit route is or when when you want to do it but early conversations with advisors to gauge you know what what are the options available what would they need to put in place to hit their price aspirations or anything else which is important to them is all good food for thought and as i said some of those things you know they can take years to evolve or years to put in place and so you don't really want to be under pressure on just as you're going to market of trying to do all this in the background as well as run a process 
So I think taking the taking advantage of of advisors early and getting getting sounding boards as to where you want to be and how achievable that is at the moment. I think linking to that is having someone who knows the numbers um, and someone who can who can help because a lot of the the burden of a process falls to the finance director or financial controller, making sure you've got someone in the business that can deliver accurate information quickly or promptly is something that is quite often overlooked with, with insurance businesses. The, the other one I would say is don't overhype the business. So the sale, I, I mentioned something called an IM earlier, which is a, an information memorandum. That's the main sales document that goes out to prospective buyers and investors. And there can be a tendency to, to get carried away with the sales messages and, and, and paint a really rosy picture. But remembering that you're going to have to support that in diligence um, you know, people like Peter's teams are going to come in and they're going to crawl all over the forecast, the numbers, the assumptions, and being able to demonstrate that those are achievable or realistic will be really important. So, you know, t- almost tucking something up your sleeve for later, you can always release good news further into a process. But what you don't want to be doing is is having to row back from your numbers the second a buyer is interested. Yeah, the, the final point I sort of mentioned it earlier, but um, getting an advisor on board early, so working with somebody in the run-up, someone that you trust, you feel will give you sound advice, get the business ready, because there is a lot to think about. There's lots of moving parts. And if you try to do it all up front, it can be a bit overwhelming, but a good advisor will guide you through each step and help you along the way. I think yes. that's probably the main the main things that I would say. I don't know if Peter's got anything to chip in on that. Yeah, just in the spirit of chipping in, the I think it's like selling a house, isn't it? You know, that you like to have a wow factor in, in, in your house. But actually, I think you want to avoid the ug factor that puts people off. And, um, you know, if you've got a bit of wallpaper peeling off or a damp patch on the ceiling, you know, best to get that sorted. And I think it's the same selling a business that, you know, you wouldn't want a bit of personal tax planning you did a few years ago to, to then become the focus of everybody's attention, uh, drawing away from some of the strengths in the businesses and, and, um, uh, and, and, and causing an issue that people struggle to get around so a bit of house cleaning you know a bit, bit of painting place the odd bit of carpet can pay some dividends and having a smooth process would you have any different advice for businesses who they might have been approached obviously by by a potential buyer it's just seemed like quite an opportune moment you know it's if, if they've caught them on a certain day a bad day where they thought actually all right this could be a good time to exit would you have any f- sort of further advice for those type of people who are maybe haven't been planning that exit out for, you know, say a couple of years or so? Yeah, we're very often working with companies who are are doing an off-market deal. They've done a lot of research, they found a target and they they engage with that target. There's, there's, There's no process, so no advisors in place. And actually everybody thinks that's a really good position to be. Um, but actually advisors help get a deal done efficiently and well. So there's a bit of risk around that. So I think if you were the buyer and you find out that the seller doesn't have advisors, it's actually in your interest to make sure that they do have an advisor and a good advisor um, at, at that. You know, we sort of joke where if um, a seller says, um, oh, yeah, I'm going to use John, my lawyer, who was really good in the divorce, doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be really good for you in advising you to sell a business. So somebody who's got some experience, knows their way around the block, knows what's normal and knows what's not. Make sure that you've got good advisors um, on both sides. Yeah, I would echo that. I think quite often we see businesses who have had an approach and they almost think that the hard bit has been done because there's a buyer on the hook who's interested. And and sometimes as well, they'll you know, the buyer will have a short list of information or quite a long list of information, but that information is sort of drip thread across. It's not really packaged. It's not really thought, you know, it's just a, an excerpt from management accounts. It's not really painting the whole picture in terms of the future opportunity, but it's also not maximizing the potential today. And and 
it's such a shame when we see people react like that because it's an important decision. They might, as I said earlier, they might only sell their business once in their lifetime and you want to make sure you get it right. And, and the further down the line you go with a buyer before you sort of think, actually, I could do with some advice, the harder it is then to, to reframe the buyer's expectations and to get the best deal. So as Peter said, I think you know in that situation, advice is just as warranted as if you were going to market, maybe even more so, and to do it earlier than later. Overall, that can affect the price, that initial price that might have tempted them into that exit after all the due diligence and everything that's done. If they don't have those advisors on board, could actually end up affect what they actually get at the end. So, in terms of that sort of valuation side of things, do you have any recommendations for the listeners who would be looking to enhance their company's valuations? What should they do to be able to enhance their business's valuation? Yeah, I mean, there's the, the sort of three core areas to, to valuation. There's the profits that someone's bidding off of the multiple they apply, and then there's what we call the, the surplus cash, so the, 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 the assets or cash in the business that's over and above what is needed to run it day to day. And they all carry quite significant aspects of value. So I think you know, quite often we see businesses that, that think they're going to go through a sale process and they, they just think about turnover, or they just think about top line or, or a certain metric on their P&L, Whereas actually quality over quantity sometimes pays dividends and making sure that the, the quality of earnings is good. We touched on it earlier, but the EBITDA that you're putting forward in your sale prospectus and making sure that is robust and can be supported and is also not, not missing a trick in maximizing the value today. So adding, making sure you've got the right ad backs and being sensible with it. So not, not trying to add back the kitchen sink and everything that, that you think will move uh, profits up. Um, because that, that sort of weakens your position with the buyer and, and, and actually makes them quite weary. But focusing on the areas that move the needle and making sure that the, the earnings piece is, is solid and can be when it comes to diligence. You know, someone like Peter's team will come in and think this is a really nice business. And, the, you know, there aren't things that have been pushed through that aren't really genuine ad backs. So I think that the, the quality of the earnings and, you know, for example, a, a common thing with insurance brokers and MGAs is the commission versus profit share. I think you know, lots of buyers will accept profit share, but a commission structure, particularly amongst private equity, is generally seen as a cleaner, easier metric for them to get comfortable with. So you know, thinking about the business model and the quality of earnings is one. The multiple, so how would you want to position your business to a buyer when the time comes? If you're, you know, if you're positioning yourself as an insure tech business and you don't have a CTO, you know, some, sometimes people follow a tag, but they don't really think about when they look under the bonnet of the, of the business, does it support what they're trying to say? So thinking about your website, your LinkedIn profiles, uh, the management team and how they're presented, does everybody everything support the, the overarching message of how you want to position the business and, and what you'd like to say to buyers? And, and you know, alongside that, the risk areas. If there, if there are things that keep you up at night as an owner, they're likely going to be distractions for a buyer. So thinking about where you can uh, minimise some of those risks or put mitigations in place to make them less of an issue when the time comes. And then probably Peter's team sees more on the, the surplus cash working capital aspect. Yes, that's right. And, and, you know, there's some simple things you can do to make sure that in your monthly management accounts, you're presenting a higher cash number, an office cash number. And, you know, we see many people coming to market where they've, they've left a lot of cash in the IBA account rather than taking it into their office account on a regular basis. So it just raises a question then about well, what is the free cash and it looks like it's maybe a lower number than it actually is. 
So a good bit of housekeeping in the year before you're selling, making sure that you're transfer, you're doing your reconciliations and transferring the cash over on a timely basis to get the best month end numbers you can. And you know, to the extent you can, maybe holding back a little on paying some creditors and collect, making sure you're collecting your new debtors earlier to keep that free cash. To the extent that's under your control, that can pay. But I, I think sort of slightly away from the numbers, you know, people the, the, the buyer will have a perception of the target company. And to the extent you can increase the profile that that business has, and that might mean doing a, a bit more PR one way or the other, maybe going to shows so that you're, you're more visible as a business. And, you know, feels like it might be a bit sneaky, but, you know, if you know somebody's looking at you and trying um, or going to make an attempt to buy you, then um, why not have a look at who their larger clients are and see if you can poach one, because that will certainly put you on their radar screen. And then it becomes not only a, an attractive uh, proposition to buy you, but a bit defensive as well. So, um, you know, there are lots of things you can do to enhance uh, the perception of value. Fantastic. Fantastic. What, what I get from all of that is that real attention to detail in everything that you're doing as a business, presenting, making sure that, yeah, even through, you know, right through to your social media and your website, your marketing is that you're presenting a very coherent message that, that all stands up to what you're looking to sell, the asset that you're essentially looking to sell. In, in terms of timelines, though, if there are any executives or business owners out there listening now looking to sell their business, when would you advise them is the best time to start? And what should be those first steps that if they're sort of dipping their toe out to see what might be available to them? Yeah, sure. I think, I mean, we generally say it's never too early to start thinking about it. I think Peter mentioned earlier about tax consequences. And, you know, if you're restructuring off, there's things that you need to tidy up the housekeeping aspects within a business. Sometimes that needs a window of two years to, to uh, come into effect or to have the full benefits. And so, I think sometimes that surprises owners when they haven't really been thinking about all aspects of a, a sale in the run-up. So I think you know, two, two to three years is a good window because you're close enough to have a sense of you know, what you'd like personally out of a transaction and, and where the business is today. There's time to put recommendations and suggestions into interaction and groom the business as best as you can in advance for sale. But I think also talking, you know, as well as talking to advisors, it's if you've got friends or contacts in either the insurance market or, or a you know, different market, talking to them about what their experiences were of going through a sale process, what the pitfalls were for them, things that they would have done differently. Most owners will have something that they say, oh, I wish I'd have done. And just getting yourself as up the curve or as knowledgeable as you can about the process and what's in store. Because when you actually press the button in the process, it can be nine, you know, nine months roughly of, of stress and activity and and as much as you can do to alleviate that in the run-up the better thank you natalie and would you advise businesses i mean i know insurance businesses and should tech businesses are very good at attending events sponsoring events for their customers to really sort of market themselves would you advise businesses to get out there a little bit more within the insurance industry itself and get their name get their brand out there even further let their competition sort of know what they're doing yeah definitely Building profile and, as Peter said, getting on the radar of some of your competitors or, or potential buyers is a great way to initiate interest. So, and, and quite often, because they're more dynamic, they're more nimble, they can deliver better customer services. Some of the smaller operators can be can be quite challenges for the you know, against the bigger boys. So, mm. it's definitely worth thinking about building the profile and getting your name out there. I think alongside everything else, I mean, you know, when we're working with businesses, we always advise them to to continue to run the business as if they weren't going through a process because you never know what will happen once you go out to market. Owners might decide not to sell or, or they might not get the price that they want. 
And so there's that balance between priming a business for sale and, and making sure that you're not deviating too far off course from what you would want and, and, and having a good asset at the end of the day. But generally in the, in the run-up, anything you can do to get your name out there and to, to raise awareness of what you're doing and, and, and how special you are and being known for something typically, typically attracts buyers, adds value. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you, Natalie. We've almost reached the end of our time together today in the insurance coffee house. Time has certainly flown by, but before we go there, do you each have one piece of closing advice for our listeners and how would anyone go about reaching out to you after the show? So on the self side, I think it's make the most of having the advisory network and, and firms like ours out there to go and have informal coffees and chats and talk about your plans to pick their brains on what they might be wanting to think about in the run-up to, to an event and what a good exit route might look like because there's lots of different options out there for owner-managers and, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a trade sale or it doesn't necessarily have to be a private equity deal. So knowing what can be done, so I would take advantage of the advice that's out there and, and go and have some coffees and chats. And um, uh, for me, if I if I think about the buy side work I do, and I do work on the buy side and sell side, but I think about buyers, my message would be, look, don't, don't be frightened to say no if you're 75% of the way through the process. And even though you haven't found a deal breaker, you're just starting to feel a bit uncomfortable. Is the cultural fit right? You know, is it really clear how you're going to work together with people going forward? If you're not comfortable about it, don't worry about pulling out, you know, um, deals fall over all the time. And, you know, my analogy on that would be thinking about a wedding day that, um, you know, um, don't walk down the aisle if you're not, <laughs> if you don't think it's the right thing to do, because it's a lot less, a uh, lot less painful to pull out at 75% uh, of the way through than, um, than do a bad, a bad deal. So avoiding yeah, bad deals is what it's about. Be some timely advice, but I'm actually due to get married at the end of this week. So, uh, oh, congratulations. <laughs> very, very timely. I can tell I've done all of my due diligence and there's, there's no second, second thoughts at the moment on that front. Great. That's super. <laughs> and guys, yeah, if people would like to reach out to you, how would they go about doing that? Um, we're both pretty active on LinkedIn, so they can find us on uh, on LinkedIn. Alternatively, dropping us an email. So my email address is natalie.ord at rsm uk.com uh, which will be i think also available through the, the podcast as well and uh my my email address is peter.vandervelde v-a-n-d-e-r-v-e-l-d-e uh, at rsmuk.com and also i think if you go onto the rsm website there's a button to click which will uh, take you through to us or, or, or someone close to us yeah for, perfect yeah thank you guys and we'll be sure to post those links on the show notes so people can just click straight through to you after they've had a listen to the podcast. Natalie, Peter, thank you. It's been really, really interesting to find out more about the world of mergers and acquisitions and the, and the market at the moment. And thank you for the, the great advice that you've given, not only for the buyers who might be listening, but also to the sellers as well. So thank you for your time today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. And to all the insurance executives and insurtech leaders listening today, we thank you for your time. And I'm sure you would have got a lot of great value and advice from Peter and Natalie today. If you did enjoy the show, please remember to download and subscribe to the pod to receive each one of our episodes directly into your app each week. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, or I'd like to learn more about the competitive advantage that podcasts can give to your business when attracting talent please reach out to us at insurance-search.com or drop us a message on LinkedIn. Until next time, I've been Nick Codley. This has been the Insurance Coffee House Global InsureTech Series. Take care. 
You've been listening to the Insurance Coffee House with Nick Hoadley. Join us next time to hear more insights and inspiring success stories to help you become a better insurance business leader. Available to download or subscribe now.